This is the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate Podcast. The main thing that people don't realize is once they go into the real estate space is if you had a home that the, um, the new policy, a commercial policy is much more flexible than your homeowner's policy. So by law, uh, the government protects the consumer on the homeowner's policy. So many things that you can do with a commercial policy, you're just not allowed to with the flexibility of a, a homeowner's policy. You're listening to the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate Podcast, where we discuss tangible tips, tricks, and best practices for becoming financially free. The show is designed for people who want to either start real estate investing or for those who want to scale their real estate business. What's going on, everyone? This is Jonathan Farber, your host of the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate Podcast. I hope you're all well and healthy. For any first-time listeners, thanks for being here. The goal of this show is to explore ways to become financially free through real estate or to increase passive cash flow through real estate. A little background on myself, I work in corporate America at a software company and my side hustle is real estate. I currently own eight rental units and looking to add more this spring. I have house hacked, bird, flipped, and done short-term rentals to name a few strategies. My current focus is 20 to 30 unit apartment buildings in Ohio and Kentucky. I love to network and learn. So if you'd like to connect further, feel free to find me on LinkedIn, Facebook, or BiggerPockets. All right, guys, we have an awesome episode today. It's a little bit different from the typical investor Q&A podcast, but it's more of a situational podcast. Uh, I'll explain. So Jason Bott, our guest today, is an insurance specialist. He's an insurance broker based in Milwaukee but he typically works with investors exclusively. He's got a couple non, but for the, for the most part, he's working with investors. So what this episode is about is digging into all of the questions you might feel a little embarrassed to ask, or you might feel like people already expect you to know them, or you've always wondered. And I got to just ask a lot of questions that um, some were send in questions, but a lot of these were just curious questions I've had. So questions like, what's the difference between a landlord policy and a general liability policy or an umbrella policy or what's um, a dwelling policy? Like all these things that I'll say they're not the most exciting things, but they make or break a deal potentially on calculating your costs and on, then also making sure you're protected. The other topic we get into a lot in this show is do you need an LLC or should you be doing this personally in your name? He's got a really cool rule or I guess just formula of number of units and based on your situation that he determines how or if you should be converting from your personal to an LLC. So kind of an interesting uh, topic, but very like important just for the sense of all investors need insurance, especially if you're getting bank loans, lenders uh, require you to have it. And that's another thing we talk about in the episode today. And then we also talk about what it's like to actually file a claim um, how difficult that process is, who you talk to, how long it takes, all that sort of stuff. So just like dig into all the nitty gritty. Um, Jason is not your typical investor who we have as an interviewee on the show, but he works with investors all the time. And this is such an important part of the business. I had a couple of requests to have someone like this on the show and that's what this is. So we'll have a couple more episodes like this of having a real estate attorney, a real estate accountant, Jason checked the box for real estate insurance, but just a really important part of the function and something that you're gonna need as a real estate investor. So that was the summary and background of Jason. Today's tangible tip is if you are a landlord or I guess a general business owner and you are trying to build your um, Google reviews, your social presence, 
Um, an easy one, as I've gotten experience just with my dad's business, was five-star Google reviews and how much of a difference that makes. Um, it sounds pretty obvious, but what you can do is incent your tenants or incent your customers to write you these reviews for basically nothing, maybe a small discount. It can be a discount rent or just a small discount in the purchase that they're making. But uh, let me just explain and assure you guys that any small discount will come back to you tenfold if you get enough of these five-star reviews. This is just where the industry is going. More syndicators and more business owners I talk to, they are just focused on their social and digital footprint. And Google reviews are still, I would say number one, as far as quick search and people looking at if you're legit or not. So for any business out there or anyone starting, I'd say like real estate business, I would really focus on that. None of my properties are big enough to have Google reviews right now, but some of the ones I'm looking at that would have branding, I, I see this as something that would need to be redone or turned around because it makes such a big difference when people are looking. So that's today's tangible tip. Google reviews in return for some type of discount with your tenants or customers. So without any further ado, let's get into the awesome episode today with Jason Bott. All right, Jason, what's going on? Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Jonathan. Appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely, man. I was thinking back, like I do with most guests, of how we first got connected. And I believe it was first through Bigger Pockets when I was looking for some help on insuring a property of mine in Pinehurst. And your name came up in a couple forums and we got connected then. And then you helped me out with that property and taught me a lot about insurance along the way. And that was what I was hoping and thinking that we would dig into on this conversation. But um, excited to have you here. Excited to dig into your story a little bit and kind of hear what's going on. So for those that don't know, would you mind just giving a quick background intro of who you are and what you do? Sure, sure. My name is Jason Bott. I am um, an insurance, commercial insurance broker and based out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, I'm a shareholder at Roberts Ryan and Associates. We're top 50 insurance carrier or insurance agency here in the US. Um, I've been in the business for about 15 years, but the last five years I've focused exclusively on the real estate investor space. And I currently insure probably uh, four to 500 clients across the country, uh, about 30 different markets, uh, about 25,000 units. So, and that goes anywhere from clients with a thousand units all the way down to people buying their first, you know, single family home or duplex. So kind of storage facilities, anything along those lines where it's in, in the real estate investment space, but probably 90% of it is, you know, single family rentals like people would used just to get started with so okay got it and i'd love to just jump right into it just because i'm sure you get a lot of same questions from new investors or people that have insurance questions that they're just not sure of what type of property the insurance needs to be or things like that so i guess on a day-to-day -day basis let's say for beginner investors or people that come to you are there any very common questions that you hear time and time again that um, you'd like to just answer or talk through now? I have a couple, but I'm curious what, what <laughs> questions do you hear all the time? Yeah, usually I'm better at responding to questions than I am just going off the cuff, but um, I'd say off the top of uh, my head, the main thing that people don't realize is once they go into the real estate space is if you had a home that the, um, the new policy, a commercial policy is much more flexible than your homeowner's policy. So, by law, uh, the government protects the consumer on the homeowner's policies. So many things that you can do with a commercial policy, you're just not allowed to 
with the flexibility of a, a homeowner's policy. So many investors, when they're starting out, take on a lot more risk than they realize, not knowing, you know, just not, not being aware of what the insurance policies are covering, you know, what the mm-hmm. language means and, and everything else. So it's just kind of a, you just need to understand it's a completely different animal. Um, and you, you, you can take on a lot more risk. Um, so that would be probably the number one thing that I see uh, investors, investors do. Got it. For young investors on that same thought, a question I hear a lot and get a lot is, do I need an LLC or what type of insurance do I need for my first rental property? So could we just start with that of what you advise someone if they're buying, let's say their first single family or duplex, triplex, quadplex, and they're trying to figure out what type of structure they need for if they need an LLC, if they can buy it personally and then just get a certain type of insurance policy or uh, if there's a general recommendation to do it. So I'd be very curious to hear your opinion on that. Sure. So uh, first, even before you get to the insurance piece is that obviously when you're starting out, it's much easier to lend under your personal name than if you set up the LLC and then try to, to lend commercially. So most, most investors, I think, stumble into that um, or at least they set up an LLC and realize they can't even use it because they can't buy that first property under the LLC. So uh, I would say that uh, from the commercial side, if you're buying a single family house, I have very rarely seen any claim get above a million dollars. And that's the standard general liability limit on a commercial you know, policy. So right off the bat, people are concerned about you know, these claims that are going to get out of control. But if you just have a single family home, I think you can just uh, have a million dollar general liability limit. And if you're a little concerned about that, you can buy an umbrella policy on top of that. Um, Because, you know, once you start doing the LLC, it starts mucking everything up from from taxes, additional paperwork, uh, the lending issue. So I, what I've seen for most of my clients is that they will have everything in their personal name up through about eight to 10 units. And then once you get to there, you hit the, the, the ceiling for personal lending and you're forced to, to then go to the commercial side. Once you go to the commercial side with the, lendi- with, the, with the lenders, now you can use the LLC and now you might as well switch everything over to the LLC. But I do have a lot of clients that have anywhere from you know, 20, 30, 40 singles or duplexes and there is a mix of titles and personal names, titles and land trusts. Uh, you know, you bought it with your wife or another partner uh, or an LLC, and you have all those different entities all on a single, you know, policy. So I don't know if there's any one way to do it. Um, I think I would do it first with lending in mind. That would be my, mm-hmm. you know, and get your get your cash flow going in the proper direction. And then after that, we can talk about just getting an umbrella policy. Um, so, yeah. Uh, one other thing I would say is it's probably cheaper to buy an umbrella policy over your whole portfolio than it is to set up all these different LLCs all, all over the place. Once you start adding up the costs of filing different taxes um, and everything, and just the administrative burden that people don't think about, you know. Yeah. So just to summarize what you're saying, because what you just described is exactly how I have mine set up. Um, I have eight units there in my name, and then I have um, general policies and umbrella policies or one umbrella policy set up. But 
I guess um, just digging into that a little more, you're saying, and, and I agree with this, that it's, it's easier to get loans when you're getting them in your name. So if there's someone out there that's looking to just buy a single family rental or house hack a rental, a property and then turn it into a rental, when you go to the bank to get that loan, it's much um, more favorable or it's better terms to get that loan, less money down, better interest rate if you're buying it in your name as opposed to an LLC. And sometimes a first-time buyer, it's, it's, I don't want to say impossible, but there's more challenges to buying in an LLC than there is uh, when you buy it personally in your name. There's just a lot more, I'd say, incentives to do so. So I think that's where you're coming from. And that's kind of the angle that I came at it too, after speaking to a lot of lawyers and insurers, just trying to figure out what the right path was and kind of came to that same conclusion. Also then after speaking to some investors of just um, get certain types of insurance policies and you can get better loans. And then later you can figure out once your net worth is over a certain amount or you're buying bigger properties, how to protect yourself, or if you are more averse to risk. So a couple of things you said there, I just want to like almost dig into the definitions of, because um, I just don't know that people understand them. And I think people throw them around a lot. So uh, the first one, what is a general liability policy? So the general liability policy protects uh, the property from any sort of uh, property damage or personal injury. So when you own a rental property, you know, the, the property, the only time that property is going to probably injure somebody um, or, or damage property, I should say, is let's say your chimney collapsed um, and it hit the building next door or the your building has a fire and it's so close to the next one that it damages the, the neighboring property. So then your general liability policy would pay for the repairs to your neighbor's property, right? But the main one for real estate investors, and this is where everybody gets um, concerned, is the slip and falls that, hey, there was a fire, I didn't have the smoke detector set up right, so now uh, you know my tenant's baby is injured and now I'm gonna have you know, a, a lawsuit come against me. That's the main thing, uh, uh, that's the main re reason for a general liability policy on a, on a rental, is for proper, you know, bodily injury to others, basically your tenants. Got it, really good definition. Okay, and how is that different from an umbrella policy? So the umbrella policy is just an extension of a general liability policy. And I want to do like a video of this with, with like Legos. So basically, but basically the general liability policy needs to be in place before you can have the umbrella sit on top of it. But the umbrella can sit on top of, you know, all in your case, all eight properties underneath, right? So instead of having just a million dollar limit, you can buy the umbrella to go up another, you know, from one to 2 million to one to 3 million, one to 4 million, one to five, depending on what you, you know, what your risk is and what your comfort level is. Mm -hmm. so a lot of people, people, I mean, the word umbrella is probably the most misused word on the real estate forums because <laughs> everybody thinks I just get an umbrella now everything's covered or I just get an umbrella now all my stuff's covered. And I even had a, a current client um, in California where he has got some rentals in, in Ohio and we set them up with, um, with a nice insurance program that includes like a $10 million uh, umbrella over the rentals. And then he called me and said, hey, you know, can you just take over my home and auto here in California? I just want one, one resource, you know, to go to for insurance. I said, no problem. And he sent it over to me. And his auto was at like $50,000 and his home was at $100,000 of liability. 
and I said, do you, you know, do you have an umbrella? He goes, well, I got the, the umbrella over the rentals. I said, well, that one is just for the rentals. Like it doesn't cover personal, your, your personal exposures, just mm-hmm. covers your business exposures. So in his case, uh, he completely misunderstood. He just thought that umbrella extended all the way over all this personal stuff. So that's, a, that's almost a whole other ball, you know, brat's nest to, to untangle is, <laughs> is umbrella because it, it can be many different, uh, I, could, I should say it can be used many different ways depending on what you have from a personal asset and business asset standpoint. Okay. Does the policy or, or are those just the most common types of policies or terms? I also think people just like saying the word umbrella, so they throw it out there a lot. But um, <laughs> is, it, is, is that pretty much it? I mean, for most real estate investors you talk to, it's general liability and then umbrella policies, or are there any other types that um, you see pop up more than others? Well, so there is the, there are the actual policies, the end, uh, and then there's the lingo that the real estate world uses for those policies. So you have the property coverage and you have the general liability coverage and that's the most basic part that you would cover any building, whether it's a, your personal home, a rental, you know, a manufacturing facility, you have property coverage and you have general liability coverage, okay? And then in the rental world, people call that a rental dwelling policy, a landlord policy, um, a homeowner's policy, which are all kind of naming the same thing. Um, so you just really want to make sure you have property coverage and general liability coverage. Um, mm-hmm. and, and to add to that, the reason why the policies are named different is however the, the properties are being used. So if it's your personal residence, it's a homeowner's policy. If you rent it out to other people, they're, they're non-relatives, it's a rental dwelling or a landlord policy that some insurance companies just kind of use it as a marketing term. But landlord policy is not a legitimate uh, insurance term. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know, got it. It's see, a rental dwelling. That, you know, so. Yeah, that's just a good point because you see a lot of the, the terms thrown out there and it's hard to say what's made up, what's lingo versus what's the actual term. So I think part of this is I remember feeling this at the beginning. I didn't want to ask these questions because I thought I'd feel it sounded stupid to me. Like I felt like I was going to look stupid just thinking I knew lingo and then not. And it prevented me from having some of these conversations. And I, I hope if there's anyone listening out there that this can also help because there were definitely times when I didn't want to, because I just felt like either I knew or it just, I would be going to someone and asking the wrong types of questions. So that makes total sense. Um, yeah, I guess, I would, yeah. I was going to say, I, I, I think this goes to not only beginners, but even to very experienced uh, investors. And that is, uh, don't even worry about asking, trying to figure out the lingo. You just, just ask, you tell people what you have. Say, hey, I have five properties that I rent out and I want to be covered if anybody gets hurt. I mean, I ask, in all honesty, and then the insurance agent knows exactly what product to put you in. The same way that you would uh, approach your tax, you know, when I approach my tax accountant, I, I just say, I, I don't start asking what forms he's going to file or, or, you know, you know, all this other, <laughs> what deductions he, you know, on line 38, are you making sure that, uh, you know, I got four dogs that, you know, I, I get this deduction here. No, I just say, you know, I just, I don't want to take on too much risk and I just want to pay the lowest amount. So if there's something you need me to do, yeah, I'll, I'll spend money here or there to get my, my taxes down. So 
I, I think people try to figure it out and it's just like learning tax code. Like it's, it, it'll just take forever to figure it out. So don't try to figure it out. Just ask, you know, tell people exactly what you have and ask for the results that you want to see uh, mm-hmm. from your policy. Really good tips. And it's at any level, there's always something to be learned with it. But at the same time, there's also always something to be gained with it. When you talk to the right person or the professional that can help you, like if you have the right insurance person, if you have the right lawyer, if you have the right accountant, they can all help you. There might be some cost to it, but if, if they're really as good as they, they claim to be a lot of times, they'll be able to save you more than you're even spending and can just help you more in the long run. So that's just a really good point. Um, one other thing that just came to mind from talking about a general, I guess, liability policy or renter's insurance, I mean, not renter's insurance, like landlord insurance at Lingo is, um, are we talking about the cost to rebuild the property or are we talking about damages to the property or is that all bundled into the general policy? Uh, so the general liability is basically damages to other third parties. So if you want to think of it that way and property coverage protects your assets, right? So it's other people's stuff and your stuff, if you want to think of it that way, right? So when you're talking about what's going to happen with, um, you know, if you have a tornado that comes through or a fire, then that's all going to be property coverage on your side. Um, and it, but if it's general liability, then it's damages you're doing to other people. Okay, got it. Very cool. Um, that helps me and that helps, I'm sure, a lot of people who are just getting into this or wondering what type of insurance they need or battling that question. Um, changing gears here a little bit, I wanted to go into a little bit of a newer space that we talked about a little with um, what I was going to do with this property in Pinehurst, North Carolina, and maybe you're seeing more of, which is the short-term rental space or whatever the space is becoming of, let's say, non-extended leases. So just just in the area of, I guess, short-term rental, um, what are some rules of thumb that you like to see or recommend for people that are looking to do, let's say, Airbnbs, but make sure they're also protected? So... The first thing is that is when people are buying a property, which we've, I think we even ran into with yourself is you know, we come up to, you're getting close to closing and we're setting up the policy for you. And um, it was initially stated, hey, it's a rental, but at the last minute it's, and, and let's say we've gone out to the market and we've tried a couple different insurance carriers and we found, you know, insurance carrier A is the most competitive. Um, and then you say, oh, well, yeah, well, I'm just doing short-term run, you know, STRs. And I said, well, insurance carrier A doesn't, they don't want any part of that. They want annual leases and that's where their pricing is, is, is underwritten for. And so if, if you are going to be using the property that way, you definitely should disclose that to, to the agent, the, mm-hmm. your, your particular insurance agent. Um, to follow up to that, that marketplace uh, four or five years ago was very difficult to come by. You know, there weren't that many insurance carriers doing it, but now um, the, the market's place is kind of matured and there's many more options. You can even get your homeowner's policy to include your second location and include it as a short-term rental. Um, so a lot of the big names that you see commercials on are starting to do it a little bit if you only have one or maybe two rentals. Um, otherwise, uh, foremost, um, CBiz and... Uh, proper are probably the three main players in the marketplace for, uh, for, for those, those short-term rentals. Got so it. that's probably the key thing is it's, it's just a very small market that you can get, you know, options from. Mm-hmm. 
at least competitive options. So, and within those, the reason I state that is because those policies have the coverages or have taken out the exclusions that affect short-term rentals. Got it. Oh. So just, and, and this is a curious question, but again, I think it would help people. So when someone comes to you and I'm sure you get this a lot, they're just looking saying, I, I need a cheap policy, or I'm just looking to have the lowest price. And you're coming back probably trying to qualify them and say, okay, so what do you actually need? So when someone is looking for, I guess, a, a cheaper policy, or you then get that request, or you're qualifying someone, what is your process then to understand what they need? but then also go out to the marketplace and try to find the right carrier for them. Can we just walk through that process a little bit? Yeah, so when, when somebody comes to me, I really don't care too much of what they currently have or what they're currently paying because nine times out of 10, they probably didn't go through the proper process to figure out if they have the right policy. So I do things kind of upside down to the traditional agent in that I'll stay to you, you know, state to you, hey, you're buying this new, this new location in Pinehurst, and you're going to have a $25,000 fire claim. You know, let's say the kitchen starts to fire, whatever the case may be. Are you looking for the policy to pay everything? Are you looking to do some of it yourself? Um, are you willing to pay 20% of every claim? Like, where is your risk tolerance and what do you want the policy to do? And once we kind of zone in on, on that and get that nailed down, now we take those specs and we go to the marketplace to get quotes. Mm -hmm. And from there, we find the lowest price option so it's more or less let's make sure we get you the right thing first as close as we can get they get it priced right and then once you see the pricing if you want to take on a little bit more risk or a little bit less risk depending on how that pricing comes in that's what we'll do but what i find for most investors that are starting off they call three or four different agents say I'm buying one, two, three Main Street, give me a quote. And then they get four quotes back that are like freaking completely different. <laughs> and they're trying to compare them all. And it's like, one, they, they, none of those four might even be right because really what the agent just did is just kind of uh, gave you all sorts of coverages that they feel you would want. And you know they usually don't qualify correctly. So that's, my, that's why my process is just a lot different. Um, and if we can get you zoned into where you're not wasting any of your insurance premium, you're not overpaying, you're not underpaying, and you're taking on just the right amount of risk, I mean, that's, that's usually the sweet spot for everybody. Cool. One of the other questions uh, I've gotten a lot is how does insurance work with the lender you have on your property? So does the lender dictate the type of policy that uh, an investor needs? Because I remember actually when we talked last, you were talking about a scenario I thought it was really interesting. One of your, your clients kind of assessed his portfolio, realized he was paying too much on insurance in certain properties, and he was willing to take the risk. I think he owned them outright. Yep. But that's not the pool of investors probably listening to this show. But for, for most investors listening to the show, they're going to have loans and they're going to probably have to meet some requirement of a lender. Can you just talk about what that means or what that looks like typically? Sure. sure. And especially when you're starting off, um, you know, that first one or two loans, I just had this happen um, this past week. Uh, and she had, you had, uh, I think you had mentioned her, my name to her because she had called me and she's buying a single family property. Um, and she said, hey, I want to, uh, again, we gave her a full replacement cost policy because that's her first location. And um, 
then she came back and said, hey, I want some actual cash value quotes because I'm trying to debate if I want to take on more risk. I said, well, since it's your first property, why don't you check with your lender first to see if they'll allow you to do so? And she went there and she said, yep, I, I can't do it. I have to carry replacement costs. So that's probably another one of the first mistakes that most investors uh, make. Your lender typically will have a lot more say to the types of coverages you need to carry than you think. And I, I've seen that when you buy your first one, two or three properties, uh, when you're working with a big bank like a US bank, they are also very strict. The credit unions seem to be much more flexible. Um, in all honesty, I think some of the credit unions don't know anything about insurance because you know, let's say you have a property you're buying for a hundred thousand and then it would cost four hundred thousand to to um to actually rebuild. The credit union's willing to accept a hundred thousand dollars of actual cash value. And they say, Well, as long as the loan's covered. Well, if you set up that type of policy, the loan's probably not covered, <laughs> but but they still accept it. So um and then of course when you get onto loans over a million dollars and they're Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae, you 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 start to have very little flexibility as well with the coverages they pretty much are dictating to you what you what you're going to have okay i'm glad you just said that because i would have totally skipped over that concept can we just talk about really quickly uh mortgage insurance if that's what you were referring to there um no it wasn't it wasn't the mortgage insurance it was you're going to you're going to close and the the bank is stating hey we need full we need these insurance terms to be included on your policy so sure. we need the replacement costs. We need um, special form cause of loss included in there versus basic form. So all those things uh, can, can be a little bit less uh, cost-wise if, if, if that's what you're referring to. So, I mean, the mortgage insurance itself, that where the bank is protecting themselves, um, if you're not putting 20% down, that's what you're referring to, correct? Yes, I was referring to just in that credit union example. I, you did an awesome job um, explaining the part about like the bank requirement, but in the example you met of where a credit union doesn't really understand insurance and they're saying, oh, as long as the loan is insured, is that what you meant? So, there? As, so as long as the uh, insured value on the policy is greater than the loan value. Got it. So, okay. so, you know, like you're buying a property, I set up a policy for $100,000, your loan is 95,000, the credit card or the credit union basically says, yeah, that's, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's enough coverage. You know, okay. what I'm saying is the credit union doesn't understand that if you do have a loss, you, you might not get 100,000, you might get 60,000. And now the big, you know, the credit union is, is underwater by 35, you know, so they don't realize that they're taking on that risk. Gotcha. So. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, last question before we go on to, I guess I just have one claim question, but um, for landlords out there that are also worried about, um, let's say, I guess this would be a, a property insurance question or it could be general liability, I guess, but let's say something happens, a natural disaster and their tenant has to move out and move into a hotel or they're not receiving rent on that property. Um, what type of protection can they have through insurance to prevent um, loss of that type? Sure. So there's there's two things here. The first thing is um, every for the landlord themselves, you'll have a line item on on your policy that says you know either rental value, loss of rents, business income. They're all all three are basically the same thing, and those cover your loss of rents if you if you have a claim. Um, by covered peril. 
that means if you're covered for, for wind, fire, explosion, and one of those three happen, the insurance company will cover your rents until the property is rebuilt. Okay, mm -hmm. so that's, that's from the uh, investor side of the table. From the tenant side of the table, they should be insuring themselves with renter's insurance. And that renter's insurance will pay for them to go temporarily, stay at a hotel, will cover their belongings and everything else. Um, it's very rare that the landlord's insurance policy will do anything for the tenant. And mm -hmm. a lot of people feel like, you know, there's a, obviously there's a, they feel like there's a moral obligation to do something for them. But from a legal standpoint, insurance standpoint, there, there is none. Got it. That makes sense. So I guess, is that why most leases in, it require that a tenant has renter's insurance? Yes. To fill that gap. It is to fill that gap and kind of to put the onus on the tenant to make them aware that, hey, the landlord is not covering all their stuff, all your stuff. You're responsible for your stuff. <laughs> it's just, you know, it's the, it's the rental pool that you deal with that sometimes they're just not to that point in their life or, or savvy enough to really understand that you're just not going to be taking care of them that, that much or that, you know, so that does come up uh, uh, quite a bit. But the, the other main reason that you see it in, on the leases is from a, the renter's insurance policy that the tenant would take out also has a general liability policy um, to cover the tenant for damages that they do to the landlord. Okay. And it's usually for a hundred thousand dollars is the starting point. So let's say the tenant, and I had this happen last year, a tenant starts a kitchen fire and the tenant says, it's completely my fault. I'm so sorry. Uh, you know, I, I want, I want to pay for this. The renter's insurance for the tenant actually paid for my client. It was about $125,000 kitchen fire. So it's, it's a claim on the renter's policy for the tenant. It's not a claim on the landlord's. So that keeps the landlord's po uh, policy clean, keeps their rates low. Um, and that, that's really the way you want it. And that's the way, the, that's the, way the, uh, the insurance companies for the real estate investors want it as well, is they want to be able to pass that risk from their policy to the tenant's policy. Um, so that's another reason why, why you see it on there. Okay. That's a really good point. I wouldn't have really thought of that. So thank you for clearing that up. Sure. Um, sorry. One more question before we get into claim stuff, but, uh, I just think it's important for the listener out there who hasn't done a deal yet, but they're just still worried that they, that's their holdup that they don't want to buy something because they're worried that something really bad is going to happen to them. So is there any other type of coverage or policy that, that you've seen or do regularly or just things to ensure protect an investor or beginner investor um, who's worried at the beginning or your advice to them about um, how to feel good about this and not be too worried to buy their first investment property? Yeah, so I would, I would say there's a couple things that are not covered by a traditional landlord policy or rental dwelling policy. And that would be, um, and I've seen this a couple times this past year happened with even some of my very large clients where there's been a dispute about getting the, the deposit back. Um, there a dispute of, Hey, I was just about to pay the rent and you took all my stuff and threw it to the curb and now it's gone, you know? Um, and that is, you really can't buy coverage for that. I think it's a consumer, I forget the exact language, but it's more of a consumer act. Um, violation on the landlord's part if there's some sort of dispute there and that's 
uh, something that you, to, you just can't buy coverage for, right? So as long as you're running, as long as you're kind of in tune with your tenants and you're responding and you're not being neglectful, most of the time, the land, I should say almost all the time, the landlord policy is going to cover you for everything that you're really concerned about. So the stuff you're not concerned about, maybe some discrimination, uh, fair housing, the Consumer Act, those things, like maybe you might get in trouble for those, but those might be a $5,000 issue or a $10,000 issue. We're not talking a million dollars, right? So mm -hmm. the ones that you might be concerned about of, hey, there was a fire and uh, they're claiming I didn't take proper care of the, the property and therefore uh, they're suing me for $3 million. Um, something like that would be picked up by your insurance policy. You know, okay. so, and of all the single families I insure, I've still yet to see a claim go over a million dollars for a single family. Okay, so, that's fascinating. That's yeah. what makes people feel better, especially if they have the general stuff that we talked about of a general policy. And yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think that to add to that, like as you grow bigger, I know you're referring to the, the, the beginner, but let, I still have some beginner investors that might start off with a five unit or a six unit building, right? You know, and the way that I, I kind of convince them to try to look at it that is, hey, now you have six tenants that can file a claim against you and they all have to fit within that million dollars of liability, right? So now we're talking about was a buck 50, a buck, a buck 80, 187, 50 or whatever that is. Um, of limit per tenant versus a single family home, you have that full million dollars for liability claims. So that's why when you're starting off, I feel like you're pretty safe. As you grow, that's when you start to maybe fold in the the, uh, the umbrella policy to add some additional coverage. Cool, really good explanation. Um, last couple of questions I had are just actually now on the other side. Questions about claims, which sure. I know don't happen that often, but people like to understand and it's definitely something that I think could happen. Um, so for the most common type of claim that you see, what's a typical process of that or any advice for someone on what to expect? Um, so there's two, there's the general liability claim, like somebody slips and falls mm -hmm. and then there's the fire, right? Those are probably the two, two typical ones. And on the first one, um, people go crazy when they get their first suit or the tenant says, I got hurt people just like, they just cannot take it. Like they feel like it's a, almost like a personal attack on them. And I just try to say, that's what you paid for the insurance for. Just give it to the insurance company and try to get it behind you. Now, if you're not taking care of your properties, maybe that's a message. But if you're fully taking care of your properties and there's just a really, you know, innocent claim that had, you know, like a, you had an older tenant that just slipped and fell down the stairs. Um, you just submit that claim. I've seen clients now they're calling their own lawyer and driving up their own, you know, uh, lawyer fees. It's like, well, no, you paid for the insurance to legally represent you. That's part of the benefit. So don't go hiring a lawyer, submit it to your insurance carrier and just let them handle it. I mean, that's part of the benefit of having the policy, right? Yep. And, and that's very that? common. I just, I just, let's say that for someone that has this happen, they just, they just call you and say, Hey, I just heard this. It looks like I'm getting sued. Yeah. I mean, some, usually it's verbal at first and there'll be um, some landlords, especially the more experienced ones will, won't even tell me uh, about that until 
they get the formal suit, you know? So, cause if you have a lot of C properties, um, for every four people that complain, you're only going to get one formal suit. And so I only get the formal suits. So especially if you get something in the mail that's from a court or from a lawyer, that's what you just forward to your insurance agent and say, hey, if you can please send this to the insurance carrier. Um, and even at that point, as the agent, I don't need to know that much about it. What I need, you're gonna be needing to explain all that to the claim adjuster. Now, once we get into the claim, we may wanna talk about, hey, what are we doing to uh, mitigate that risk? Can we, can we, can you do something different in your process to eliminate these um, in the future? Because if you have too many of those, now the insurance carriers are going to start to charge you for it um, on your renewals, and that's going to start driving up your cost. So it could be it could be as simple as having, you know, on some of the uh, singles, you know, coming off the city sidewalk, you might have one step or you might have two steps. People trip on those all the time, and just having a simple handrail there. If you don't have the handrail there the insurance company is basically writing the check. Wow. So we have a, I have a current client where I think his, his, his highest one was, it was 50 grand for somebody that just kind of tripped on the front step and the claim adjuster went out there, saw that there wasn't a handrail and in court that you're done. That's, that's it. So, so interesting. <laughs> yeah. But, he, but even then, you know, it's like a, a claim that, you know, he was fully at fault for and, and the, the highest one is 50 grand, you know? So, you know, we've had some other deaths and so forth, and I've still only seen those claims come in at six or seven hundred thousand. Not saying it can't get above a million, but right. right now, you know, people with a single family think like all hell is going to break loose and somebody's going to sue them for fifty million dollars and they're going to lose their home and their kids, and it just, I just don't see it happening. I don't see it happening. So yeah, that's a perfect explanation. I, I guess just on that, when a claim does, let's say, open. How, how painful or what's the timeline someone can expect typically? I know every case is different, but just from the hundreds or thousands that you've seen, let's say someone slips and falls, how, how painful is it for a landlord typically? And typically, how long does it, does it take? Well, so again, going back to the part of the one, the liability you know, claims, straight liability claims, those can take forever. Those can take five or six years if it's, if it's really intense. Right. If it's pretty straightforward, like the first one, like, hey, I tripped, I broke my ankle. They go out there, there's no handrail. Um, that could be settled in six to nine months, maybe even a year, like a year and a half. So that's almost sometimes the quickest they get settled. Right. So, like the complete opposite of our society with expecting everything like instantly, claims go for like ever. Right. Now, that one, the only benefit to the general liability claims is the, the landlord really doesn't participate from a time standpoint. You know, you pass on the claim to the, to the insurance carrier and they just handle it all. And then at the end of the day, they kind of tell you what they paid or didn't pay or need some more um, input from you. Mm-hmm. Now, if you have a kitchen fire, that's just a complete time suck for the landlord. You know, so you report that fire, you then have to um, meet with the claim adjuster usually on site or have the claim adjuster go out there and then you start to get quotes and determine if you're going to do some of the work, if, uh, if you're going to hire a restoration company, if you're going to hire your own contractors. There's all these different things that you have to start to figure out. And um, those, those can take a long time and those can take 50 hours of your time. 50 or 100 hours of your time by the time it's all said and done of all the back and forth and everything else. Like it's, so 
that's probably the the one unforeseen that people just don't realize is how much time a fire loss takes uh, from you. And what's the majority of that time spent on? Like after you get the adjuster out there, you meet them and you start getting quotes, what happens after that that would take so long? Well, again, like now you're dealing with your tenants and maybe you're concerned your tenants are going somewhere else. Um, um, you're, you're busy trying to figure out, well, when is this contractor going to get there? And now your contractor has questions for you of like, well, how do you, you know, you know, a lot of times these, these cash flowing properties are older properties. Yeah. So you start running the issues as soon as you start, let's say they have, again, they have a kitchen fire, which is probably the most common claim you're going to have. And, you know, all of a sudden you got to start to figure out how you're going to blend that into the rest of the property, right? There's all these kind of little decisions that kind of uh, need to be made because mm-hmm. typically you just don't have an open checkbook where you can just pay for, you know, you, you have usually a certain amount that you have to kind of fit everything into and it's up to you and your contractor to figure out well, how much maybe that you can fix, how far you're going to go. Okay. Half the, half the stairways the upstairs was, um, was burnt. You know, are you going to, and I'm going to replace the first half. Should we just redrywall the whole, you know, the whole hallway up to the top or should we just pay half of it? Or, you know, what should we do? Like there's all those types of things that you got to now deal with that you really hadn't anticipated that you were going to have to deal with. Does the, two things on that. Does the landlord typically have to front the cost and be reimbursed, reimbursed by the um, insurer or not? They do not No, And, and most, most, I mean, if you're going to be working with a restoration contractor, they already know how that all goes and they're not going to ask for any money from you whatsoever. Now, if you're trying to maybe, um, let's say you set up your policy to be a little bit more aggressive and you don't have as much money to fix the claim because you want to use your local people for half the cost of a restoration contractor, um, then then you, you may end up paying them a little bit because your contractor is not familiar with how the insurance company is going to pay and right. they just don't got it you know, they don't try they don't trust that process yet so you're going to be the one having to pay them for the moment until they figure that out so but for the most part um you, you do not need to front any money okay yeah. and, and again it depends how the general policy would be set up or you know the renters gen, and just for the true clarification here the the landlord policy is the same as the general policy in this case so, well, there is no necessarily general policy, but yeah, I mean. Or general it, liability. So general liability is the slip and fall. That's part of your landlord policy. And then you have the property policy, you know, coverage, I should say. Let me freeze it. So property coverage within your policy. Um, those, are the, those are one of the two things. So let's say you have a fire and somebody gets hurt. Now you have a general liability claim along with the property claim. So you have both. Right. Got the double. Okay. Yeah, you got, got the double whammy. And, so, and in that case, which one of those would be compensating you for rent loss? The property coverage would. Got it. Okay. Yep. That makes sense. Yep. Um, yep. Okay. I guess the only, the only last questions I had pretty much in general, but their specific claims were, um, is it true that after you have a claim, uh, your, your policy price typically goes up? Uh, it can but not always. Okay. You know, so let's say you have um, even just one pol- one claim. If you just have one claim, no matter how big, let's say it's $5,000 or let's say it's $100,000 on a single family home, usually your policy doesn't go up that much. 
you, you, it's kind of out of whack. Now, when people run into problems is they start having multiple claims, whether it's on a single um, location or on multiple uh, locations in their portfolio, now, you're, now your policy is going up. Because there's a very good indication that, you know, when you have one claim, that's what insurance is for. And it's just a reflection of just the, the way things just naturally happen. You're going to have a fire here. You're going to have a windstorm here. You're going to have a hailstorm. But if you have, you know, a portfolio of 20, 10 locations, let's just say, and you have six claims in the last five years, that's probably more of a reflection at the root of that. It probably has something to do with how you take care of your properties, the type of tenants you take on. Um, and, and what the true exposures are of the policy, there's a very good indication that you're probably going to have claim number seven <laughs> in that next year for some reason. You know? Right. So at that point, yeah. And, and so there's all sorts of other strategies that if you've had a large loss that we could do something, you know, we can either like sometimes take that single location that had the loss, we can peel that one off, do something different than the rest of the portfolio. Um, there's all sorts of things you can do. Okay. In a hot market like this, you could sell it. So just, just dump the thing and get it off your portfolio. And that way you can, you know, go back out the market that? with a clean, clean portfolio. Do people sell property like in the middle of a claim? Uh, again, so I just recently, and I, again, I'm based here in Milwaukee. So I have a very large landlord here that has 400 locations and he had a side-by-side that um, it, uh, one side burnt and the insurance policy paid the limit. So as far as the insurance company goes, they're, they paid in full. He insured it for, I think, one, 150. They paid 150, done. You know, he says, well, I don't have time to fix it because my crews are working on three other properties. So I, I think I'm just going to sell this thing. Well, he takes it to market and uh, he, he sold it for, for 90 grand, right? I think it, Maybe it was 105. He listed it for 90, got 105. Um, so in his case, uh, next year when I market that policy for him, the location that had the claim is not going to be on there. And so the the underwriter that will be a benefit to to the pricing. Jason, I feel like I could ask you 20 more questions, but for the sake of time, I think we have to tie off there. I think this is going to help so many people who just maybe don't want to ask the question or don't want to look stupid. But I think a lot of these questions are um, necessary and a lot of them are misunderstood. So you've helped me learn a lot of stuff from the beginning, from the first time we met. And I even learned a lot on this conversation. So um, there's always more to be learned here, but I just want to say thank you again for coming on and doing what you do. Uh, clearly of the reputation you do from bigger pockets and social media networking, a lot of word of mouth stuff, just because, you are as knowledgeable as you are and you can come on and talk about it like this. So I uh, just want to say thank you before we hop any uh, last parting words or general comment for the listeners. No, if anybody has any questions or needs any help, please feel free to reach out. It's, it's not only myself, but I have uh, you know, four other team members where our focus is real estate investors. So that's all we're doing. So um, we welcome, uh, welcome anybody's questions and, and happy to help if we can. All right. Awesome. Well, Jason, thank you again and all the best in 2020 and beyond. You too, Jonathan. Thanks so much for having me. 
Hey, you millennial millionaire. Do you want more? Then head to the Millennial Millionaires Through Real Estate Facebook group, where there are tons of step-by-step walkthroughs, tools, templates, and free networking to help you achieve financial freedom through real estate. And if you want Jonathan to help you personally reach your goals, then feel free to set up a one-on-one call in the link below or message him on any social media platform and apply to, well, work with Jonathan.